0: You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the life of David, we're calling Hills and Valleys. With this week's message, here's pastor to middle adults, Joe Cook. Well, I don't know
1: about you, but I love a good story that begins with they were lost on a deserted island. It's one of my favorite beginnings. So I have a story this morning about a a single person, one person alone on a deserted island for 10 years. He finally had some rescuers show up. Now, he made himself, he kept himself busy while he was on that island for those 10 years. And when the rescuers got there, he was eager to kind of show off what he had done to manage to survive. So he brought the rescuers around and he said, this is my hut. I built it with my own two hands. And they admired it appropriately and kind of encouraged him and then they saw another building had a cross on it. And they said, what's that? He said, oh, that's the church that I attend once a week. I kept a routine throughout my, my time here. And they thought, like, well, that's really good of you. And then one of them looked down the path a little bit further and they saw another, another little cottage down there with a cross on And they said, well, what's that? He said, oh, that's the church I used to attend. <laughs> that poor guy couldn't even get along with himself. <laughs> Unfortunately... Sometimes churches are known for having these little trivial tiffs. You've probably heard of some of them. Uh, we don't like the carpet or the paint on the walls or the music's too loud or the music's too new or the music's too old. Whatever it may be, we've heard a lot of those. But as I was looking through some research and studying this, I ran across a man by the name of Tom Rainer. He's a church health consultant. And he performed sort of a, an impromptu Twitter survey. And he just asked people, what are some of the things you've heard strange things you've heard of people dividing over in churches specifically. And there were some of the usual things, but there were a few that jumped out at me that I thought were a little odd that I'd share with you this morning. One church argued over the the appearance of the staff, and a petition was started to have all the male staff members be clean-shaven. I'm closer than most of them (laughs) in, in all kinds of ways. That was one of the things. Okay, we'll see that. Then another one, remember this is an actual church somewhere in the continental United States had this debate. There was a petition started that the worship pastor would wear shoes when he was leading worship. Now, I haven't seen Blake's feet. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Okay? And the last one is the one that really gets me. There's actually a church that argued about this over the appropriateness of serving deviled eggs at a church dinner. There you go. There were grown-up people arguing over that. Now, I don't know if it would have balanced it out if they had angel food for dessert or not. <laughs> angel food cake, but there you go. People will argue over some very trivial things, won't they? But whether it's trivial or important, disunity is deadly for anybody, and it's specifically deadly, specifically deadly for a body of believers, for people of God. And Jesus said it this way. You're probably familiar with this. I'm sorry, Tom Rainer said this about the disunity. Let me me cover that first. Tom Rainer said the breakdown of church unity is the most critical problem in the churches today. And the point I wanted to make with that is he didn't choose politics, he didn't choose some kind of cultural issue. What he chose was disunity. We're always gonna have disagreements, but can we be unified? Can mature believers come together and find some way to peacefully move forward? He pointed to disunity as the key issue as he was a church health consultant. Now Jesus said it this way. He said in Mark 3, 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Unity is a major concern in scripture. When we think about what does it take to unify people, it it's, can be very complex. And this won't be an exhaustive discussion on that, but as we look at the narrative today, and as I thought through this stage in David's life, I think what we see are some principles that we can draw out and apply these to our lives and where we are in our world. The thing that I want us to think about is what can we do, little O oh you and little O oh me, to help promote church unity. We're going to be in Second Samuel chapter five. So you can make your ways there. Make your way there. Last week, where we were is we were in 2 Samuel 3, and we found out that there was a civil war going on. What we're going to see is David's heart coming through in this narrative. David longs for unity. In fact, in one of his psalms, Psalm 133, he said this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now let's let those words kind of wash over you and sink in. David loved the concept of unity. And he's been embroiled in a seven-year civil war. Seven years of turmoil, seven years of discord and brother-against-brother brother violence, and he longs for unity. In the two chapters between now where we are today and where we were last week, there's some things that have taken place that you need to know about. If you remember when the civil war started, Abner was the general that had been serving under Saul, and he puts into place Saul's son, Ishbosheth and he's sort of a puppet king Abner's really the power behind the throne and in Judah David rules with the crown of one tribe so it's the it's the tribe of Judah against all the other tribes with Ishbosheth and Abner leading that well Ishbosheth and Abner begin to argue and fight and Abner decides that he's going to defect and so he he prepares a meeting to meet with David and have this appointment where they're going to talk about how he can give David the kingdom David's general Joab gets wind of it. He hates Abner because, as we saw last week, Abner had killed Joab's brother. So Abner, he performs what you would call a blood feud. He takes revenge on Abner and he kills him. And David is grieved. He's cut to the heart. And in chapter 3, 37, we read David writing this. Or we read this written about what David did. Because David cursed Joab and he declared mourning for Abner. And then we read this commentary in verse 37. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put Abner to death. David distanced himself from this brother against brother violence. Not only was Abner killed, but two of Ishbosheth's servants had killed him. So think about this the two, the two human beings that stood between David and the crown of all Israel are now dead. And what is the first thing David does? He declares mourning he distanced himself. Yes, he wants unity, but he doesn't want it at the cost of bloodshed. So David is going to move to to bring unity but in a peaceful way. And we're going to draw some principles out from this today. So open up your Bibles to chapter 5 and let's begin and let's see what takes place in these first 5 verses. So we read here that then all the tribes of Israel had came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are bone and flesh in, pa- in times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, "You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel." So all the elders of Israel came to king came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed King David king over all Israel. Now look at verse four. This is sort of a summary of his reign. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. That's the total of his time as king. Breaks it up at Hebron, he had reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he had reigned over all Israel and Judah for uh, reigned over all Israel for 33 years. So the total was 40. Well, let's back up and let's look at the first part of that. This is definitely a high point in David's life. Remember, 25 years earlier, that old prophet had showed up at the homestead and poured oil on young David and said, you're going to be the king of all Israel. Two and a half decades later, it comes to fruition. He has that crown seated on his head. What happened in that two and a half decades? Well, ten years he spent on the run from Saul. Seven and a half years he was embroiled in the seven and a half years of violence, of brother against brother in a Civil War. But finally, at last, The crown is on his head. And David, loving unity, he's now going to move to unify this body of believers. So as we go through it, let's draw some principles out. Again, remember, we want to ultimately apply this to our lives. So what does it take to establish unity? The first thing we see is the people need to choose a leader that they can trust. These people have been in a lot of disagreements for a long time, but they finally found something, someone that they could agree upon, and that's David. David has the right to rule on three basic qualifications. Notice in verse 1, he's bone and flesh. It harkens back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam saw Eve, he said, ah, she's bone in my bone and flesh in my flesh. He's saying we're connected, we're kin, we're related. And then you see these people are saying, David, you're descendant of Abraham, you're descendant of Jacob. We're connected, we're related. You're one of us. You can be our king. That was one of the qualifications. The second qualification, look at 2A it was you who led us out and you who brought us in. They're remembering back that when David had killed Goliath, the next thing that happened with David is he became this great warrior. He was going out and fighting battles with the Philistines. David won every battle he was ever in. Here's what we learned about David. He had the right to be king by merit. He was no silver spoon king. He didn't just inherit a crown. He went out and he did the work he he conquered he was victorious over their enemies David had the right to rule based on his his bone and their flesh he's related to him and he had the right of merit but thirdly look at 2b and this is the key and the Lord said to you they're recognizing what the Lord has said you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over them they're saying David you're God's man We know, we've heard the stories, we know that Samuel came and he anointed you. You have the right to rule us because God has chosen you. So those three qualifications met. David is now their king. But I want us to think about this word shepherd. You know, this is the first time in the Old Testament that a king is referred to as shepherd. Now, Saul was never referred to as a shepherd. When they asked for a king, remember what they asked for? They said, we want a king like all the other kings. And that's what they got. But when God gives them a king, he calls that king a shepherd. And that's a key, it's an important word. God's been called a shepherd this far in the the Old Testament, but never a king. A shepherd looks out for the flock. You know, I was reading through some things and studying about shepherds, and I ran across this at farmingbase.com. The question was asked, can sheep survive on their own? They're talking about domesticated sheep. And this was the simple response, no. And then they unpacked it a little bit. Sheep cannot live without the shepherd. They're entirely dependent upon the shepherd for everything. They require constant care and watching over. So leaving them unattended can put them at risk and greatly endanger their lives. They might survive, but they'll never thrive. Domestic sheep need their, need their wool shear. They need their hooves trimmed. They need a shepherd. If not, the sheep will go in all different directions. They need a shepherd to lead the way. We don't want to be lost like sheep without a shepherd. We need someone to lead us. The first principle that I draw from these five verses about unity, how do we establish unity among God's people? I would state it this way. For God's people to be unified, they must embrace God's leader. They must embrace God's leader. Remember where we're going at the end? We're gonna ask the question, how can we be unified? What can we do to contribute to it? Step one, we have to embrace God's leader. That's the first thing. Well, now David has the crown. David has the crown, and now he has a problem. Look at verses 6 and 7. When you have a newly founded nation or a newly rejoined nation, you're going to have to ask a question. Where do we rule from? David had a problem. If he stayed in Hebron, in Judah, all the other nations are going to feel kind of disenfranchised. They're going to think, well, he favors Judah. That's his, that's his tribe. That's his people. Well, what about us? But if he moves if he moves the capital into Israel, then his people, his main support, Judah, who stood by him in thick and thin, they're going to feel a little bit put off by that. So what is he going to do? I believe God inspires David to do something that's ingenious. David, He inspires David to take territory that's never been held before. And we're going to see that it's a, it's a very strategic place. It's Jerusalem. Look at verse 6 and 7. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Verse 7, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now, we're post all of this. We're thousands of years in the future. When you and I think of Israel, we just naturally think of Jerusalem as being being part of that nation. It wasn't always that way. This is going to be the first time that Israel has possessed that piece of property. When Joshua went into the Promised Land, they couldn't drive the inhabitants out from this fortified area. This was a strategic place. It was land that had never been covered, never been held by Israel. So it was neutral, and is right on the border between Judah and Benjamin. This was an extremely wise choice politically, Because now nobody could say what's favoritism is also extremely wise strategically as a tactical thing. Jerusalem, the stronghold there, was protected on all three sides by valleys. That's why they say they make the claim did you catch that? The blind and the lame will keep you out. They were saying the weakest among us can defend this. They were wrong, but that was what they thought, and that was why they had existed so long. David and his men are going to go in and they're going to take this territory. It also has spiritual significance. This this region is where Abraham, centuries before, had taken his son Isaac and began to offer him as a sacrifice. And it's going to be the place where centuries and centuries later, Jesus is going to be the sacrifice. So there's a lot of spiritual significance for this as well, too. But when you look at this and you think about what's being talked about here, I want you to look at that word Zion. This again is the first time this this word shows up, Zion. Now, when we hear that word, we hear it in poetry, we hear songs, the songs of Zion, we naturally think of Israel. But this was the first time that word was used. David named this town that. I believe God led him to do that, and here's what God is going to do. David has now given the nation common ground. Now he's going to give them a common vision, and that word Zion is going to be the touchstone I want you to look at a few passages with me. First of all, let's consider how important vision is. Proverbs, writer of Proverbs, in the King James Version, it says it this way, where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no vision, the people perish. David, by God is inspiring David to give these people a vision, and it's going to hinge around this word Zion. Now look at Psalm 9. This is a Psalm of David. He writes this, Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. Who sits enthroned? Do you see what's starting to happen with this word Zion? That's where God's thrown at. Sooner or later, sooner rather than later, we're going to see the temple put there. That's seen as the place where God is. Another Psalm of David, Psalm 14, he writes this On that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of His people. Where is salvation going to come from? This place, Zion. This word is going to keep being repeated. This place, this vision is going to continue to be casted. He goes on, When the Lord restores the fortune of His people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. All circling around this idea of Zion. The prophets pick it up. You may be familiar with this passage in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation. Is humble. He is he. he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This place, Zion, becomes the place their hope rests. It's going to become the, the touchstone place, that heartbeat of their existence. In Psalm 149, we find out it points to their family. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Zion, it's a vision. It's a vision of what God is going to do in the life of this nation. People need vision. So our second principle is this. For for God's people to be unified, they must embrace God's vision. And remember where we're headed. We're gonna apply this to ourselves. The shepherd king has come. He's given them common ground. He's given them a common vision. Now, verses 8 and 10 tell you a little bit about how they captured Jerusalem. But where I want us to focus next is verses 11 and 12. 12 is critical to understanding David as the shepherd king. Verse 11, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and also carpenters and masons who built the house of David. In verse 12, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Hiram recognized that David has done something unique. He has taken these 12 loosely associated tribes and brought them together in a collective, and they're powerful. Unity is powerful. We're going to talk about that in a second. And so this nearby king who depends on those trade routes He sends them these cedars and he wants to have a good relationship with them. Verse 12, this convinces David of a couple of things. Look, David knew. David knew the Lord had established him king for his own glory? No, look what he established him for, for the sake of the people Israel. Tom Constable wrote it this way. David realized that God had placed him on the throne for the Israelites' welfare, not for his own personal glory. The good shepherd, the shepherd king, lays down his life for the flock. That's the kind of king David is going to be. Verses 13 through 16 are a summary of kind of how David's kingdom is going to go in the early days. And what we're going to see there is once again, he's taking more wives and more concubines. And we've made a commitment in this process not to ignore it when David gets it wrong. And David gets it wrong here. This was a way eastern monarchs would kind of establish their kingdom. And David has adopted that process. And here's what I'll look at, and as we see this play out, here's a principle that we can draw from this. Trying to do God's work in the world's method is going to backfire. It backfired for David, and it's going to backfire for you and I when, when we try to do that. David is working to unify him. When he gets it right, he does it God's way. When he gets it wrong, he does it man's way. But God continues to work through him. Isn't it great that God continues to work through flawed vessels like David and like you and me? So let's talk about the next section. Let's talk about unity being established. How is the flock going to be protected? You know, not everybody likes it when people are unified. It's going to draw up enemies sometimes when that takes place. But there's strength in unity, and Israel is going to learn that. I I read across a fable, one of Aesop's fables. It goes like this. There were these four oxen and they lived in a field. It was a large field surrounded by a forest. And out in the forest there roamed a lion who longed to eat these oxen. But every time they would come into the field, one of the oxen had talked about this and they had a they had a plan in place. They said, if you see the lion you start swishing your tail and we'll all back up to each other, one'll face north, one will face south, one east and one west. So they had a plan, and when the lion would come in, all he got was the horns. But later, the oxens began to argue with one another. Later, they began to suspect that maybe one of them had better grass in their part of the pasture than the others had. And so disunity developed in the oxens. and you guessed it. As they were disunified, they stopped looking out for each other. They stopped having each other's back. The lions started picking them off one at a time. Israel's unified now. It's strong, but when it's disunified, it's weak. The Philistines see all that's going on. They attack at the wrong time. They're going to attack when, when Israel is strong, and we're going to see how that goes for them. But it's interesting to note that they kind of left them alone when David and Israel were content to fight among themselves. I think our enemy, the devil, will do that too. As long as we're fighting among ourselves, he'll kind of like, oh, okay. Let them kind of tear each other up. Unity is strength. Let's see how David moves to protect Israel. Look at verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines in your hand. Verse twenty. David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there, and Israel, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of that place is Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Very one-sided battle, victory. The Philistines come in, but notice this newly crowned king. He's got the crown of all the tribes. What's the first thing that he does? He prays. He seeks God's guidance. And then they have this great victory. They even carry off their idols. That would have been a horrible blow to the Philistines. I mean, that, when that happened, that was the sign that, hey, our gods have even been defeated in an ancient warfare. And so David could have been very proud of this, but notice who gets the credit. Look at the end of verse 20, it says the Lord has broken through. The Lord has broken through. David gave credit to God where the credit was due. Now here's something to think about. When we have a great victory, it's easy to think, oh, okay, we can rest now. Just because you win one victory doesn't mean the war is over. The Philistines still have a little fight left in them. Look at verse 22. The Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, same valley. And when David inquired of the Lord, notice he inquires of the Lord again. The Lord said, you shall not go up, but go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees, verse 24. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before to strike strike down the army of the Philistines. David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Gaber to Gazer. So there's another great victory that takes place. David, once again, when he sees the enemy coming, what's the first thing that he does? He prays. Now that's remarkable. After that first great victory, where they even conquered their, their idols, you'd think David was pretty bold and he said, Well, I can move, I can, I've got this one, God. No. The first thing he does is he prays. He seeks the guidance of the Lord. And that brings us to our third principle that we want to draw out from this as we go through. To unify God's people, they must embrace God's guidance. To unify God's people, they must engage God's guidance. That's what we see David doing. David doesn't rest on the laurels of his past victories. He stays vigilant. He keeps his eyes on the Lord. David talked in his psalms about it's God who's enthroned at Zion. David understood he was, he was sort of the apprentice king. He was looking to God for his guidance. Now, in this narrative, we've seen these three principles. Let's look at them in line. There's embracing God's leader. That's going to be required if we're going to participate in unifying God's people. To unify God's people, we're going to have to embrace God's vision. And to unify God's people, we're going to have to embrace God's guidance. The things that little o' you and little o' me are going to have to do, it's going to boil down to those three things. But first, let's look at that, that beginning one. Let's talk about embracing God's leader. David, when he got it right, when he was at his best, it pointed to Jesus Christ. When David was right, when he modeled the right behavior, when he was doing things God's ways, he's a picture of Jesus. So you and I would say that our shepherd king is Jesus. Now, does he qualify to be the king? Now think back to what David did to qualify. He was related to him, he had it by merit, and he had it by divine election. Jesus is on all three of those points too. Look at Galatians 4.4, Jesus is fully man. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the son of a woman born under the law. Do you see that? Born of a woman. There's a number of verses we could have gone to, but I like this one. It shows that Jesus is flesh and blood with us. He is related to us. He's our bone and he's our flesh. The next thing has to do with merit, and the writer of Hebrews picks up a little bit on both of these. In Hebrews 2, we read this, since therefore the children share in, notice the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. We're we're connected to him that way. But then notice how it continues. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus has defeated the enemy. Just like David went out with Israel, he led them out, he led them back in, he conquered the Philistines, he conquered their enemies. Jesus is our victor. Jesus is not a silver spoon king either. Jesus has earned the right to be our shepherd king. And the third category was to be was divine election. We read this in Philippians two nine and eleven. Therefore, God has highly exalted exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus wins on all three points. Jesus has the right of kinship. He has the right of merit. He has the right of divine election. Now, as we embrace all that and we think about Jesus has the right to be our shepherd, you know, you remember in the gospel, Jesus even said, I am the good shepherd. And he talked about what the good shepherd would do. The writer of Hebrews calls him the great shepherd and the writer, first Peter, apostle Peter calls him the chief shepherd. Jesus is the true shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Do you know him as your shepherd? Do you know him as your savior? We learn about him that he will leave the 99 and go in search search of the one. If you're here today and you don't know him, he's searching for you. He wants to know you. He laid down his life for yours. He paid for your sins and mine. And he offers you eternal life through simple faith in him. Right where you sit, you can call out to him and you can place your faith in him in a simple prayer. If you do that, let one of us know we would like to welcome you into the family. We could say, welcome you into the fold or welcome you into the flock. See, the first step towards us establishing unity among God's people is going to be embracing this shepherd king. Having done that, our second step, if you'll remember, is embracing God's vision. So I'm going to ask you to turn one more place in Scripture. I'm going to ask you to turn to the Gospel of John, and I'm going to ask you to look at John 17. Now, if you've never noticed what I'm about to show you, I'm excited to share one of the most special things I think we have in the Gospels with regard to our relationship with Jesus. This is his high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying for his people. And I don't know if you know this or not, but he prays for you. He prays for you and he prays for me. John chapter 17, glance down at verse 20 with me. We read Jesus' words. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Did you catch it? For those who will believe in me. That's you. That's me. Jesus is praying for for us. He's thinking about us all the way back then, and He wants something for us. He's going to move right now into His vision for us. Remember David's vision that was cast, that God cast through David for Zion, and the hope that was going to be there? Well, now Jesus is going to present us with a vision. Look at verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Unity. Do you see that? What does Jesus want? He wants us to be unified. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one as we are one. Now look at verse 23. It says... I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me God's vision for us is to be unified so as we transition now and we're thinking through what can little o you and little o me do to contribute to unity in the body of Christ we need to think in terms of what Jesus wanted for us. He wants us to be unified. He wants us to be together. In John chapter 13, he said it this way. He said, "He said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's what we're supposed to be known for. We're not supposed to be known for arguing over the carpet and over arguing over whether the worship pastor wears shoes or not. We're supposed to be known for how we love and care for one another, how we have each other's backs. That's what Jesus' vision for the body of Christ is. It's his vision for the local church. It's his vision for the church universal. So how do we do this? Well, I would say this. We can't follow a leader that we don't look at, listen to, and talk to. Makes sense, doesn't it? It's pretty simple logic. We have to have a king. We have to have a leader that we're looking at we have to embrace god's leader we have to embrace god's vision and then last thing is embracing his guidance how do we do that how do we embrace god's guidance he's given us some things to do that with earlier or last year in the fall we went through this handbook to prayer and many of you joined us in that and what ken boa does in this is he takes scripture and he turns it into prayer But in the beginning, there's something, if you didn't read the introduction, you missed a real gem, and I want to share it with you. Ken Boa writes this, Spiritual growth is impossible, notice that, spiritual growth is impossible apart from the practice of prayer. Just as the key to quality relationships with other people is time spent in communication, so the key to growing relationship with the personal God of heaven and earth it's time invested in speaking to him in prayer and listening to his voice in Scripture. Some pretty profound words. There's a lot of disunity in our day. And I am convinced that we will never be unified until we set our eyes on our shepherd, until we start communicating with him, until we grasp his vision for unity, and we start following him, putting our eyes on him, our mind on him, The church will never be a unified church until it's a praying church. Let me rephrase it. Let me say that again. The church will never be a unified church until it's a praying church. Oswald Chambers said, prayer isn't what prepares you for the work. Prayer is the work. Prayer is the work. We could have discussed a lot of things this morning about disunity. We could have talked about the different issues that we argue about in our church, uh, in the world, Politics, cultural issues, all kinds of things. Some of them are trivial, and some of them are important. But if they cause disunity, the disunity is the problem. Paul talked about unity and diversity. He used the idea of the, of the body in 1 Corinthians 12. He said, the hand is not a foot. There are differences. They're going to be there, but they're still the same body. The eye is not an ear, but they're still part of the same body. Mature believers, we ought to be able to disagree and do so lovingly. This is a major issue in our world today. We're to be known for how we love one another. And as we go through here, what I see in the narrative of David and as I pull out these principles is that what we have to do is we have to set our mind on our shepherd. We have to look at him and focus on what he cares about. Consider this statement. Unity exists when people share a commitment to something bigger than their differences. Bigger than their differences. What's the biggest thing in your life? Is it the differences that you have with other people? Is our main priority to being right, winning the debate, or is our main priority to be faithful to Jesus? If we'd filter our life through these ideas and these thoughts, we would have a unity grow up, and people would look at the church and they would go, wow, look at how they love one another. They don't always agree. Oh, man, look at how they love one another. How do we proceed? How do we embrace this guidance that God offers us? How do we do that? You know, one of the things I've been convicted of lately is we need to spend some time being very practical about how we do this. If you walk away and say, okay, Joe said um, the secret to unity is to pray and read the Bible. Okay. Basically, that is kind of what I said. But how do we do that? How do we do that? I want to give you two practices this morning. These are things that you can walk out, and it's actually, it actually tells you kind of what you can do to incorporate prayer and Bible study into the fabric of your life. Jesus doesn't just want to be a part of your life on Sunday morning. He wants to be there Monday morning and Wednesday afternoon and Thursday afternoon. He wants to be with you all the way through. And Ken Boa gives us some good exercises in his book and some other things he's written, and I'm going to share one of them with you. If you're still in the Gospel of John, turn back just two pages Two pages to a keystone verse that I would love for everyone to memorize and know and be familiar with, John 15, 5. In John 15, 5, we read this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the key. Boa suggests that you take that verse. It's not very big. Write it down. Put it on a post-it note. Stick the post-it note on your mirror where you brush your teeth. Stick it on your desk at work. Put it on the dashboard of your car. And when you see it, it takes about 10 seconds to read it. And he says he suggests turn it into a prayer. Every time you see it, go, Lord, I wish to follow you. I recognize and acknowledge I can do nothing apart from you. Turn it into a prayer. Weave it into the fabric of of your day. That takes less time than it takes to brush your teeth. I talk to people sometimes about spiritual hygiene and what are we doing when we first wake up in the morning to set our minds on the Lord. That's one real simple way. Now, the other one is going to take a little bit more time, and I'm going to invite all of you to do this with me. We're going to go to the 23rd Psalm, it's the Shepherd's Psalm. So, read with me The Lord is my Shepherd. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever.
0: You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. You can also hear each week's message Sunday mornings on 89.5 FM KMOC. Listen to our podcast online anytime at gracechurch.com or find us in the Apple Podcast directory. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.